0: This week on the show we cover Backup and Restore on NetBSD, OpenBSD 6.7 is available, so we covered that. Uh, we have an article and tutorial for you about building a WireGuard jail with FreeBSD standard tools. Uh, we cover a little bit who gets to own things and quotas and all these interesting stuff that happens in the system. Uh, we have also the uh, TrueNAS Core roadmap for you, as well as other interesting bits and pieces in this week's episode of BSD. BSD Now episode 351, Heaven, OpenBSD 6.7, recorded on the 20th of May 2020. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Groschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Uh, Welcome to this week's episode. Hope you're all well and good because we have great headlines for you, as always. Uh, The one we picked first is Backup and Restore on NetBSD. uh, So this
1: is over uh, on a GitHub blog, and the user goes on and says, "Uh, putting together the bits and pieces of a Backup and Restore concept, while not being rocket science, always seems to be a little bit ungrateful. Uh, Most admin handbooks handle this topic only with a few pages. After replacing my old Mac mini OS with NetBSD, I tried to implement an automated backup, allowing me to handle it uh, in you know, similarly to the time machine backups that they would have had on macOS. Uh, suggestions on how to improve are, of course, always welcome. So some thoughts on their strategy. They say, the first thing you probably want uh, when reading about these topics is the advice. Uh, don't have a backup strategy, but a recovery strategy. That is, make sure your backups are actually in a usable shape and be sure you know how to apply them in an emergency. Uh, Depending on how much you value your data, uh, you might want to store the backup media in a physically remote place. At least you should not store it in the same disks uh, to be backed up, but on detachable media or on a remote computer. Uh, Also, it should be set read-only after the backup is finished, uh, so it can't accidentally be damaged while accessing it. The next question is about how much time and space you want to dedicate to your backup. When doing a full backup each time, recovery is easy, just apply the latest backup. On the flip side, each backup might take a really long time and much storage space. So, on the other extreme, it would be to start with one full backup and afterwards only doing incremental and uh, differential backups. Then, of course, the restore is expensive as you need to apply each of the incrementals on top of the original full to get to the latest backup. So tools like rsync mitigate by merging each increment into the previous backup, making a copy of the backed up file system. But this collides with the requirements of not modifying the previous backup, and of wanting to be able to say, oh, I didn't realize that file got corrupted yesterday, and then we backed it up last night. So this morning, I can't restore it to the previously uncorrupted state because I've now backed up the corrupted version and rsync was only keeping one copy. And that's why, you know, you know, just a, uh, a copy like an rsync is not really as good as a backup. So then you have tools like dump uh, for UFS and FFS and similar, and it suggests to do the next incremental only every nth time. For example, every second time. That is to generate the diff of the same preceding backup the following two consecutive backups. Besides that, it suggests generating weekly backups incremental to the original full backups. Uh, Finally, it suggests to build a new backup every four weeks, this way to maintain your three-level strategy of stacked increments. You know, if you have a full backup once a month or whatever, and then differentials once a week, and incrementals once a day, you will never have to apply, uh, you know, if you had just incrementals, you could have to apply 30 different backups to be able to restore, whereas with the You know, grandfather strategy of full differential and then a bunch of incrementals would mean that you'd never have to apply more than one full the differential which is everything from the full to that point Uh, so then you'd be in the right week and then you know just a couple of incrementals to get to the day uh, without having to do you know 30 incrementals or whatever but dump gives you quite a bit of flexibility allowing you to do level zero all the way up to level nine I think uh, or seven at least and you know make up whatever kind of strategy makes sense for you But of course dump only works on compatible file systems but UFS is one of those. Uh, So now when you want to access a remote backup device uh, you know you can do uh, dump over ssh and then uh, you know can reverse that to do uh, restores that way as well or you can use something like sshfs uh, to just write directly to a file that's on a remote host uh, or you know a bunch of other similar options. Or you can use snapshots. You know UFS has snapshots although they're not really the same as a set of snapshots, but the other main thing to consider when doing a backup is if your data is changing while you're backing it up, you don't actually have a consistent backup. Especially if you have anything like a large file, you know, if you have a VM running, when you start reading the VM image, if it's many gigabytes, by the time you finish, the middle has changed, and so what you actually have is a corrupted file system of your VM. Uh, maybe it'll be okay, but maybe it'll be quite problematic. And so if you can create a snapshot, even with UFS, if you back up that snapshot, you know that during the backup, none of the files are changing, because you're backing up the snapshot. And it will give you a much nicer backup. Even if you're, you know, just using tools like dump or rsync. Backing up the snapshot uh will give you a much more consistent version of the file than you would get otherwise. I think dump includes it by default, don't they? I don't actually know. I admit I've never actually used dump as a backup strategy, but they have some examples uh, further down. So if you just want to get to, what do I got to do to make this work? Uh, they show how that can happen. And they built a shell script, uh, which they appended onto the end here. So if you want to, you know, have all their logic already applied for you, it's quite useful. And
0: also with snapshots, you get the whole uh, permissions and ACLs, whereas with dump, you have to make sure that all of these are included as options. Yeah, the examples for each of these invite uh, uh, tests, so you can just right away uh, copy and change them to your needs without having to figure out, oh, which options do I need for that? so you, so you can just start away and make sure um, you you test them out for a while and then see which ones suit you better. Okay, I like that. Okay, then next we have the namesake for this episode. Uh, the openBSD six point seven release is here, punctual as ever because that's OpenBSD's way of the release uh, cycle. And, uh, of course, with nice artwork and all the other uh, extra things you would get from OpenBSD, uh, released on May 19th, so just one day from the time of this recording. And uh, there is plenty of new things in there. Of course, it's a major release.
1: Yeah, uh, I see that their concat volume manager uh, can now work with just a single chunk, which can be useful when you want to be able to add more chunks later, and that, uh, bio CTL change support from a maximum of seven to a maximum of 15 volumes that can be created on a single disc, allowing you to have a lot more partitions than you could before. Uh, you know, that can be important if you are, uh, if it's a VM or, or cloud image and
0: you're going to keep growing it over time,
1: uh, it might make a big difference. There.
0: Yeah. So there's the whole big list, uh, in OpenBSD's changelog, of course, which we've linked for our show notes. Uh, of course it's a bit much to go through each item, but the uh general overview has it look like it's very very well polished so they have uh, general improvements and bug fixes of course at the beginning so that's that's a whole long list uh there's a bunch of changes to the d h client uh for example releasing leases without a server identified or having uh not sending endless uh request messages when an ACK is never received so that's some Good things behind uh, the scenes in your network stack for DHCP.
1: Uh, I also noticed their software raid crypto volumes now work properly on 4K sector disks, where
0: uh, doing 512 byte reads or writes would actually return an error. Mm-hmm. They also switched the default compiler on PowerPC to Clang, so people need to be aware of that if they want to compile some binaries. And ah, the sm- <laughs> small things here, not, not too shabby. They implemented scrolling in top uh, using the nine and zero keys interesting.
1: That's not a bad idea. Um, Then they uh, also now have FFS2, uh, the newer version of the file system, uh, which supports 64-bit timestamps and uh, 64-bit block numbers, or inodes, uh, and is now the default for all new installs on almost every architecture. I think it's like Luna88K, and SGI, a couple that don't support it. Uh, They changed the Spark 64 boot blocks to be able to read from FFS1 and FFS2, as well as software, and enable FFS2 option for both of the floppies for Spark as well. And they taught, you know, i386, Mac PPC, Mm -hmm. uh, HPPA, Alpha, and a bunch of others uh, support for reading from FFS2. They also fixed a problem with the partition reading code on Alpha for dealing with offsets of more than 2 gigabytes. And the ARM64 and ARMv7 EFI boot also got uh, support for FFS2. Okay. Yeah,
0: getting those out out from underneath the uh, kernel lock. Then there are SMP improvements. uh, a bunch of uh, functions in the kernel and, uh, yeah, uh, what are they called? System calls, yes. (laughs) So they are run without those. So that's uh, a bit faster this way and multiple processors. And uh, they made some VMX transmit MP safe improvements or made it overall uh, MP uh and the um
1: amd's symmetric multiprocessor slash core package detection stuff which helps prevent cores being misidentified as threads and then being disabled by the default of not having hyper threading on uh, openbsd so yeah some improvements for the new amd hardware
0: speaking of hardware a bunch of new uh hardware uh got updated or drivers written in the first place. So there's a happy list of new devices now working uh, in OpenBSD better than before. Uh,
1: Improvements to the EM driver, which is the Intel one gigabit, uh, added the URE driver for Lenovo uh, one line plus ethernet that's built into the dock for a lot of Lenovo laptops. So that's a good one to have.
0: Mm -hmm. There is some uh, ACPV out changes for the screen brightness adjustments. So you can use the functions key Uh, Function keys to better support the machines, uh, using exponential brightness scaling, and the scaling itself is uh, in levels of five percent or higher. Yeah, Uh, they removed some drivers though. You know, uh, some
1: old IBM PC boards, uh, old-fashioned ATA SCSI, some old PCMCIA cards, and the Apple Power Macintosh SCSI card. Ah, those. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing anybody be using anymore, so it was good to get those cleaned up. Yeah, yeah, no
0: one will miss those.
1: Lots of improvements to their audio driver framework, SNDIO, so that's good. Yeah. Uh, improvements, uh, lots of drivers added for the ARM64 and ARMv7 hardware support. There's a giant list in the changelog there. Wireless stack improvements, generic network stack improvements, installer improvements. Unveil is now used in 82 userland programs to redact. Uh, File system access. They've extracted dig host and ns lookup from the bind source code and cleaned up the source code by removing not needed features and auditing it. Uh, So now uh, the kernel API accessible by these programs is now restricted through pledge as well. So they basically have forks of dig host and ns lookup in base, which is one way to approach it. I think in FreeBSD we replaced them with uh, the drill, which is what LDNS or something. But yes, I miss dig sometimes. So That's a nice approach. It's not like there's a lot of development in DIG where you need to worry about diverging from upstream,
0: right? (laughs) That's true, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, uh, further improvements are in the routing and uh, userland network improvements. Uh, Ooh, JSON output in BGPCTL. And uh, yeah, lots of
1: other improvements around networking and userland stuff, including uh, support for VXLAN, GPE, and TCP dump, more ifconfig stuff. SNMP stuff, the FTP slash HTTP client is improved, Uh, and the RPKI client for doing uh, signed BGP stuff uh, is improved as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, VMM slash VMD, their hypervisor, uh, got some work. More Spark 64 virtualization improvements. Uh, Imported open SMTPD 6.7, which includes new features, bug fixes, and experimental features. The latest release of LibreSSL 3.1.1, which adds the TLS 1.3 extensions, bunch of that. OpenSSH 8.3, which has a list of the possibly incompatible changes. Uh, For example, SFTP rejects the argument dash one in the same way that SSH and SCP do, instead of accepting it and silently ignoring it. Uh, Remove support for SSH RSA with a SHA1 from the list of allowed uh, certificate authority signature algorithms. And removed uh, the known bad Diffie-Hellman Group 14 SHA-1s as part of the key exchange. And more, I think we covered
0: all that in the 8.3 release earlier. Uh, there are unbind improvements as well as IPsec improvements as
1: well. Mandoc improvements, ports and packages improvements. where They have over 11,000 ports for AMD64 and almost as many for ARM64. Only maybe 500 less uh, out of, you know, 11,000. That's Oh, that's a lot. That's good work. Uh, plus, they updated uh, their version of Xenochara to be based on Xorg 7.7 7 with Xorg server 1.20.8, um, plus lots of fixes, Mesa 19.2.8, etc. They're on Clang, LLVM 8, uh, GCC 4.2, and 3.3. And they've updated Perl to 5.30, Unbound to 1.10, etc.
0: Uh, you find update instructions as well as uh, uh, extra last minute changes uh, of course in there as well and if you like the release uh, definitely consider a donation to the OpenBSD foundation and yeah i think that's a decent release if you have uh, installed it already and tested it for a while then we would be happy if you would uh, either write a, a little uh, like blog post about it how your experiences are or um, send us a little bit of feedback to feedback at bsdnow.tv. And then we'll cover a little bit more about OpenBSD uh, in this show. All right, it's time for the news roundup this week. Uh, we have a how to article for you about building a WireGuard jail with the FreeBSD standard tools. So this one is, uh, of course, about the popular WireGuard uh, VPN solution that a lot of people are using and uh, it's becoming very, very popular. So uh, this is the uh, tutorial for you. Uh, They had the opportunity to build a WireGuard jail on a FreeBSD 12one host and it was uh, really quick and easy to set up when they write and it has been working completely fine for a month. I'd like to share the experience with anyone interested in this topic. had a bunch of nodes at the beginning, but I will skip about them for now. So let's just start with creating the jail. Since this article is about uh base FreeBSD space system standard tool, you can just uh run them there. Well, sudo is not in the base system, but uh you can probably switch to root for this one as well. So to start with, you would have to create a jails file system from a template set of a snapshot. So they sent uh, in this case the Z root from a 12.1 uh version oh, there's a snapshot p3 to set up as receive oh i see this is referring to an, uh, an earlier article for details on how to create that template okay so they start off with something that, that...
1: right but basically they installed 12.1 p3 to the jail yeah that's a... you don't have to do it their way any way will do
0: right that's a separate article so this is just the base setup imagine after this point you have your uh, base template available and then you configure the internal network because uh, what they did here, they created a bridge, bridge zero for the internal uh, jail network, which is twenty four, and an e-pair, which is e-pair 0A and B. So one pair of the e-pair is connected to the um, jail and the other one is to your main host. Uh, attach the B side of the e-pair to the bridge and assign an IP address to the bridge. And adding adding the IP address to the bridge zero makes it the third routed interface on the host and the address becomes the default gateway for the jail. You would do this in rc.conf with a cloned interface entry as well as an ifconfig bridge zero and an ifconfig epair zero B to set both up. There's a nice diagram so you can see how the networking works and which is connected to which and where the bridges are and the e-pairs connected to. And so they use the bridge so that they can add more jails to the internal subnet in the future. As shown in another diagram, and uh, if you only need a single jail just to get started, uh, it's not necessary to use the bridge. You can connect the jail to the host directly with the e pair by using uh, another configuration they provided. So you just do the cloned interfaces e pair zero, and then provide ifconfig e pair zero b with an internet uh, with an IP address. There's a separate diagram for that for comparison. Very nice, and then you adjust the firewall rules Uh, in your pf.conf in this case. Uh, You would set the firewall rules for the jail and the WireGuard subnets. Uh, You define a couple macros for the internal jail and WireGuard subnets. And then uh, tell them that outgoing packets from the jail and the WireGuard subnet should go to the NAT target. Another redirect port forwarding rule is established to redirect the incoming UDP packets destined to the port 51820 to the host public IP address for the jail and allow incoming packets from the jail, which is your general pass-in rule for everything else. Next, you configure the jail on the host. You edit um, a devfs rule mm-hmm. to add a little subset or rule set there, uh, which requires the jail to create the WireGuard interfaces. So you just uh, add a def- FFS rule set there and add BPF and uh, hide to it. Next, you create uh, the etc jail.conf to add the basic config for the WireGuard jail. What this should look like and what kind of uh, you know interfaces it should have and some extra settings uh, like. Uh, allowed change black, for example. Then you would edit rc.conf to enable the jail on system startup. Always good to have. Never forget this, otherwise, when the next reboot happens, uh, your jail won't run automatically. Uh, jail enabled equals yes, and jail list uh, the jail you have in question. In this case, it's called wg, wired jail. Right. You can have a, a space
1: separated list there.
0: Right. Yeah. Otherwise, <laughs> it's mushed together and. Uh, system can't figure out which is which. Then on the jails file system, uh, you pre-edit the uh, jails rc.conf to configure its IP address, then the default gateway and enable packet forwarding so that this knows where the packet should flow with three little entries in rc.conf. And then you apply the configurations and start the jail. So it's uh, netif clone up, service pf reload and service jail start. Then within the jail, you install WireGuard and configure it uh, using packages.j option. So you can nicely install that from the outside into the jail. Yeah, it allows you to install a package in the
1: jail uh, from outside.
0: Yeah. And then you do the rest with a couple of jxec um, invocations. so you just uh, from the outside make some changes inside the jail without actually switching into the jail uh, and get a the shell there. You just do everything from the outside. uh you set up the interfaces that's uh, shown for uh, an example Android configuration, but you can I guess uh, switch this out to any other device you might have. And uh, then, last thing is, of course, in this case, the Android device. You install WireGuard app from Google Play Store, and then configure, it, point it to your new server.
1: Yeah, and they even cover how to use the QR code stuff to pass the configuration to your Android phone instead of having to type it in on the phone keyboard. Cool. Because typing in the uh, the private key or something would be really annoying.
0: Ah, yes, much easier. So yeah, straightforward, not too difficult, I guess. And I think that should also be possible to adapted to a different network or to a bigger setup Mm -hmm.
1: yeah it's similar to what i did Although i think i had to unhide the tap interfaces in the devfs as well okay that could be yeah so that wireguard could create the different tap interfaces anyway
0: uh then we have uh as a next news item the unix divide over who gets to change own things and disk space quotas. uh this is over on chris Seiberman's blog which we've covered a couple of articles already so he always has some interesting uh things to say and writes about them
1: yeah uh, so he says the unix divide over who gets to own things uh and how that applies to disk quotas this one came up for me recently and i'll talk a bit more about that at the end so he says one of the famous big slit, uh splits between the bsd unix world and the system 5 world is whether ordinary users can use chown, the command and the system call to give away their own files in system 5 derived unixes you are generally allowed to do this but in BSD-derived Unixes, you were not. Until I looked it up now to make sure, I thought that BSD changed this behavior from v7 to uh, that v7 had an unrestricted chown. However, it turns out to be wrong. In v7 Unix, CHO was restricted to root only, and the man page even says so. Saying, only the superuser may execute this call because if users were able to give files away, they would defeat the non-existent file space accounting procedures. <laughs> The quotas didn't exist yet, but they were already thinking about how users would give their files away in order to not have this thing. I remember also in at college, we had the interesting thing of not just ch own but chmod. So they actually made it so that each user didn't own their home directory. They were just in a group that had write access to their home directory. So they couldn't chmod their home directory to allow their friends access to their files. Oh, cool. Stuff like that. Anyway, he says Visa didn't have any direct support for disk quotas or file space accounting, although you could put together various things to at least monitor who was using how much space by sweeping over the file system. Anyway, in 4.2BSD, the UCB CSRG added disk quotas. And he says he believes this was part of the new 4.2BSD fast file system, or FFS. And so they kept the restriction on CHOwn. Now that they had real disk quotas, the threat of undergraduates and other people defeating them with own was quite real and had to be avoided. He notes that uh, the original 4BSD didn't have disk quotas, but it did have the quote, uh, or quote without the E command to analyze the file system and tell you per user usage information. Uh, so this area was on the CSRG's collective minds uh, for a while. It operated by scanning the raw file system through the disk uh, as per the source code that he linked. Meanwhile, on the System 5 side, the restriction on CHON appears to have been lifted under System 3, or 32v Unix, uh, where because uh, 32v Unix still had it. I don't know why it was removed, but System 3 had no disk quota system, and the change is clearly deliberate. The CHON man page uh, has been updated to document the new state of affairs. This was carried through to System 5, where it became well-known and common as System 5 spread. Uh, all of this left POSIX with a little bit of a mess, which POSIX uh, solved by allowing both behaviors in the POSIX CHON specification. In fact, POSIX goes further than a system-wide choice. Things may differ on a path-by-path basis, with some paths permitted normal users to give away their files and some not. That makes sense because you might want to do it on a per-file system basis. If the file system supports quotas, maybe it wants to enforce this rule. And for a file system that doesn't, maybe you don't want to. Uh, he says, in fact, the rationale section of the POSIX CCHO specification has a thorough recounting of a historical difference that led to the situation and confirms that normal UIDs being allowed to give away ownership was the System 3 addition. Uh, pretty much all common modern Unixes have come down on the BSD side of this divide. The BSDs inherited the original V7 and 4.2 BSD restrictions on CHOWN, and Linux copied and adopted those. Alumos uh, inherited the System 5 R4 through Solaris and appears to have a chown that by default follows the System 5 behavior by allowing anyone to give away files. However, its chown man page documents a system-wide way to turn this off uh, in allowing other options. He says, uh, it's my view that a restricted ch-own is the right choice even if you ignore disk quotas, but that's another entry. Uh, so sidebar, how to safely defeat disk quotas by ch-owning away your files. <laughs> Uh, Because this may not be obvious, let's suppose that you are an undergraduate on a system that implements disk quotas based on file ownership, (laughs) but permits you to CCHO own them to other people. Then you can get around your disk quota as follows. Make a restricted directory somewhere. Perhaps you call it, you know, home slash assignments. No one is going to fault you for making that only accessible to you. Now, create your big files in this restricted directory or a sensible subdirectory of it making them a world readable, or perhaps only group uh, readable if uh, to a group that you're in, and executable if necessary. You can also make them writable if you need to. Then, pick a victim user. Let's call him Barney. Sage own all of these files to Barney, who suddenly gets charged for your storage space. <laughs> uh, but because you're in the group, you still have access. Uh, you retain access to these files through Barney, who owns them. Because giving them away didn't change their file permissions or any uh, of that. Barney doesn't have access to them because they're hidden away inside an inaccessible directory. Standard Unix gives normal users no way to find such files to manipulate them once they have found them. And if you need to make the evidence go away or just change things around, you can delete the files because you still own the directory that they're in.
0: Oh, that's neat.
1: Yeah. Um. So what's interesting there is I had a, a similar problem. I needed... Uh, users to be able to upload files via the website, but I wanted the files to end up owned by the user, Uh, A for the accounting, but also B for so that when they later logged in they'd be able to delete them and so on. So suddenly I had this file upload user who needed to be able to give files away, which again normally isn't allowed. Uh, Luckily I was able to make a FreeBSD uh, Mac or mandatory access control module to basically make a special rule on on my systems by loading this kernel module that says, if your user ID matches the value of this sysctl that I created, um, then you're allowed to give away files as long as you currently own them. So basically this user can give files to other people, although it can't give files to root or, uh, you know, change the ownership of files it doesn't own. Uh, I kept it locked down because I didn't want somebody to be able to, you know, make a setUID binary and then say you own it to root
0: or something silly. So I like one of the comments here by OPK. It uh, goes like this. Back when I was an undergraduate, I think I was change-owning my files to root or nobody rather than picking an actual victim. And we made good use of hiding files below var slash preserve, which was where VI stored backup files until one idiot filled up the physical disk that was on. Yeah, we well, have the tales from the Unix crowd. <laughs> from way right back when. Yeah, but definitely it's a good I'll read about, you know, the the whole problems with um, the quotas and uh, yeah disk space being a short resource.
1: Yeah, um, because of the way the quotas do work on ZFS, I'm, I wonder what Illumos does there.
0: So there are general quotas for data sets and there's also user and group quotas. And so the user
1: quotas you could defeat if you can see it on the files.
0: Yeah, easily. <laughs> yeah yeah which is the best solution for the user it's like i want my partial file back
1: <laughs> i'm not sure what happens there if you own the file you snapshot it and then you see on own the file away and or and it grows or whatever like does the most of the storage get billed to the person who owns the file but the little bit of the changes that have been overwritten so the couple of blocks of the old file that aren't shared then get billed via the snapshot to the person who owned the file when the snapshot was created yeah like it's not important but it's the type of thing you could spend an hour trying to figure out
0: yeah that yeah that's a mess yeah
1: <laughs> well it's like you know uh do we just say whoever owns the file now owns that whole object or is it does it change
0: over time and
1: all kinds of interesting questions can come up there
0: okay uh let's see what's next in our list Uh, oh, you mean the TrueNAS core roadmap thing? Okay. That sounds good. Uh, you can influence the TrueNAS core roadmap. It turns out this is, uh, on ixsystems blog about TrueNAS, bugs and suggestions. So, yeah, uh, so
1: this is dear FreeNAS and soon to be TrueNAS community. Uh, we're making some changes to the FreeNAS and TrueNAS bug trackers. That'll give you yet another way to help contribute in democratize enterprise storage. As many of you know we've historically had three ticket types available to our trigger you know bugs features and improvements which are all fairly self-explanatory after some uh, discussion internally we've decided to implement a new type suggestions uh, these will be replacing feature and improvement requests uh, to the true community simplifying things down to two options bugs and suggestions uh, one issue we've had in the past with features and improvements is that just about all the ideas submitted have been good ideas The challenge has been determining which ideas are best or most desired by the community, which at the time made it difficult for our engineers to determine which one ought to be integrated into the development roadmap. Uh, Just because we think something is a good idea or a community member submits a well laid out feature request, we didn't necessarily have a great way to determine which ones would have the biggest impact. Uh, So now uh, bugs go through uh, this little flowchart they have here where they gather interest uh, and people basically submit votes to certain ideas to decide which ones they would like to be the most considered. Uh, then IX, uh reviews those uh, and then either accepts uh, or rejects the idea and then goes through and becomes a new epic in their uh, development setup. And uh, the feature and improvement tickets actually get created and they start building the feature.
0: Oh, I see. Okay. So to provide uh, such a suggestion, uh, you would log in into the ticket system and uh, then find your issue or if it's already existing and click the vote for this issue link on top right for each ticket. can can find a suggestion that addresses your issue, create a suggestion, let us know why it's important to you They write. Yeah, I see that from uh, some of the uh, the bugs in the FreeBSD bug tracker that I recently went through. So some of those are more I would like to have, or wouldn't it be great if rather than, oh, this is something not working or that should be fixed? So it's kind of difficult to kind of distinguish wishes and improvement requests with actual bugs that are appearing. Uh, but yeah, this might be a way for people to bubble up more important things uh, on their mind uh, before the developers rather than just putting them in there uh, in some kind of system that. Uh, they all start rotting in at some point. But yeah, we'll see uh, if that is uh, a nice way of bringing some of the user contributed suggestions into the TrueNAS core. All right. Time for the Beastie Bits this week. We have a FreeNAS spare parts build, uh, which is a YouTube video, testing ZFS with imbalanced VDEVs and mismatched drive. Yeah.
1: So it's an interesting video. If you want to go check that out, it's about 27 minutes long.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the mismatch can easily happen if some drives are dying and uh, if you, or if you misconfigure your pool from the beginning without using the N option to show you what, what the pool look like. So this is um, a thing that could definitely happen.
1: Unbalanced lens can happen when you add newer disks, uh, like if you just expand the pool or if you replace older disks with uh, bigger ones, but only some of them and stuff, you can end up with you know some disks in your pool almost full and some of them... Uh, mostly empty um and especially in ZFS before FreeBSD 11.2 or 11.3 then um this could cause uh
0: quite a few problems mm-hmm. okay so good to know about those next then we have a TLS version 1.3 server code enabled in LibreSSL in OpenBSD current uh this is over undeadly of course from the TLS freshly served departments uh they have uh Commit featured here by Joel Singh, uh, which enabled the TLS version 1.3 server code in LibreSSL current. And uh, the client code was already enabled in current and will be in the 6.7 release, which we covered in this uh, episode earlier. And they thank uh, Joel, Bob Beck, uh, Theo Bühler, and others for the hard work. Cool, some fresh TLS code. Always good to have.
1: Uh, Then next we have an interview yeah, uh, the the downside to, to forking OpenSSL is you have to, you know, work on each new feature to bring it over.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, an interview we have next with uh, Deb Goodkin, uh, executive director of the FreeBSD Foundation, on itsforce dot Yep.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, if you're interested in that, uh, go check it out.
0: All right, time for the feedback and questions part of this episode, which a lot of people are looking forward to um, or skip ahead to. Well, they miss the rest of the show, but <laughs> that's your choice. Uh, people send in all kinds of questions uh, to feedback at bsdnow.tv or want to have you know advice or whatever provide help we can provide here. Uh, the first one and a repeated question sender uh, is Boston here, uh, with who has a question about WireGuard, huh? which we also featured in this show earlier. But uh, he writes, Hi, Alan and Benedict and JT and any guest that might be present at the time. Okay, yeah, that's good. Kind of covering everyone. Um, I have a short question about WireGuard. This question is both for you and also JT is welcome to answer it. Uh, do you use WireGuard in any of your systems? Why, yes or no?
1: Uh, so yes, I have uh, set up wire, uh, a WireGuard jail on my home NAS so that I can connect in remotely. Uh, main reason is the setup is just a lot easier than something like OpenVPN. I don't have to build a certificate authority or anything like that. Uh, and it's kind of, you know, newer and lighter and faster. Um, so yeah, I like WireGuard. Um, there are still some rough edges like uh, when I installed it, which was a number of months ago now, um, it didn't really support dynamic addressing stuff. So like if I created five users, I had to give each of them an IP address. Uh, and you know, the same user couldn't be logged in twice. It'd be nice if it could do something like DHCP, but you know, I'm not that picky.
0: Okay. Uh, I haven't had the, the, the pleasure yet as I hear a lot of good things about WireGuard. So I use mostly the VPN into the university these days and, uh, uh, shuttle SSH shuttle. I don't know how you pronounce it. It's shuttle with SSH in front, um, because that's kind of uh, the way for me to go to all the systems in the university that I need for for my daily work. But if I ever go back on the road again, whenever that might be, WireGuard uh, might be an option for the you know the hotel or train station where you don't have a secure Wi-Fi, and WireGuard might be the solution for me since I read the tutorial earlier in this episode, I might be tempted to try this out myself. Uh, Then, a second related question. I haven't seen any news about WireGuard getting into FreeBSD base system. Do you know if it will get there?
1: Yes, I'm very sure that uh, NetGate, the company behind PFSense, is funding some work to get uh, the WireGuard kernel side stuff uh, into FreeBSD. I don't know the status of it off the top of my head, but I do know that it is something that is being done.
0: Yeah, I think there was something in the re- recentish uh quarterly report about that. Someone probably working on it. Yes, but uh, somebody is working on it.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, and hopefully it'll be there soon. Um was there something in, in the fabricator? The go-based version works fine, so.
0: Yeah, so there's no uh,
1: I'm not too concerned, but it'll be nice when it's built in.
0: Yeah, there's no um, um like license block or something that would prevent such a thing. It's just someone needing to sit down and do the missing bits to integrate that.
1: Right. Uh, well, I think that they're even focusing on making it very fast. So,
0: yeah, and definitely having that as a kernel or as a base system, uh, item would be very uh, good in that regard. So yeah, uh, that's WireGuard. Uh, if you have any experiences after maybe trying it out, then definitely send us a follow-up. And if other people want to chime in about their WireGuard experiences, definitely uh, send this to us as well. And uh, yeah, thank you, Boston, for your question. And next is a chat with a ZFS pool design question. Uh, Here goes chat. Alan, okay, addressing Alan because ZFS. Uh, (laughs) I recently acquired a Dell R6010 with dual Xeon 96 GB of RAM and three HP d 26 Hundred fully populated with LFF two terabyte drives, seventy two terabyte raw total. Oh, wow! Uh, for my home lab, I'm planning to replace the six internal R six ten SFF drives with SSDs and use two for mirrored Z roots. Quick question about that: Can I build Z root on HDD and replace it with SSD, or should I really build with SSD from the start?
1: Um, it's fine to swap the drives later; it won't make a difference.
0: Yeah, um, as long as the hard drives aren't bigger than
1: the SSDs are going to be. So if you're going to start with hard drives you might want to use a you know normally you would anyway uh to boot off of it so uh you know keep the partition smaller than whatever the ssds are going to be so that uh, you find like especially ssds tend to come in odd sizes like sometimes they're 480 gigs instead of 500 gigs uh or whatever um so you might want to undersize the partition on the hard drive you can always grow it if when to whatever size the ssd happens to end up being um, but you just want to be careful that you don't end up with ssds that are you know 100 megabytes smaller than the hard drive was and then you have problems mm-hmm.
0: yeah and if you're start just starting out with this machine it won't have much data on it uh just the base operating system installed.
1: right and so the resell will be quick exactly
0: yeah. okay uh, so two are for the mirror z root and the other four for the slog or l2 arc okay then that will depend like your slog
1: never needs to be huge like un- um you know just doing a small amount of the drive and, and leaving the rest blank and letting the wear leveling handle it will work just you know it never makes sense to have many tens of gigabytes of of slog it's just never going to need that much um and then l2arc 96 gigs of ram is is lots but it's not you know a lot either um so it might be doubtful whether the l2arc is going to help you that much if you're running new enough freebsd I don't know if 12.2 when it comes out, will have, it should. Um, so once 12.2 comes out, uh, or if you're running head, you can use the new ZFS special V devs, which would let you create a mirrored pair of SSDs and have just the metadata for your file system on those and the data blocks on the hard drives. Uh, and that might give you a bigger performance boost than having, you know, uh, a terabyte of l2 arc or something like that mm, cool so it depends on your workload yeah, the l2 arc might work well for you but it might not make that big of a help
0: mm-hmm. okay so uh chad purchased the storage bundle on uh, michael w lucas website of course in hopes of gaining some insight into how to slice and dice the drives up i'm currently reading FreeBSD Mastery's mastery zfs book and certainly picked up some good tips so far such as drive labeling and ensuring z devs uh, or VDEVs probably are spread across enclosures, but I'm still unsure uh, of how to configure the pools V VDEVs for this setup.
1: Uh, in general, uh, you just pick your layout. Like uh, if you're doing RAID Z2, then uh, pick a width that works for you uh, and slice up the drives that way. Um, the Matt Aaron's article, uh, you know, how I, lo- I learned to stop worrying and love RAID Z, um has a uh spreadsheet that can help you pick which uh width of raid Z will give you the best space efficiency for your block size and so on um you know if you're mostly storing plex stuff and you're going to use 128k or one meg blocks it's not that big of a deal
0: Mm -hmm. yeah he writes a bit about his uh intended use the primary purpose of this system will be hosting plex and running other jails and or beehive instances to provide some additional services uh, Git repos, Moonin, NFSN, Libra NMS, uh, Prometheus, Grafana, Elk, Suricata, Bro. Why do you need Moonin and Prometheus Grafana? Hmm. Okay. Uh, your choice. Uh, as well as experiment with new apps and tech, would you, yeah, we made some recommendations already configuring for this setup.
1: Yeah. So the biggest recommendation I would say is if you don't need a lot of space, if you configure your, what is it, you have like 30 some odd, uh, 36 hard drives, Uh, configure those as mirror sets you will get more performance especially um, if you're going to create zvols for like the beehives um, where you know raid Z and zvols you can end up wasting a lot of space uh, if you have a small vol block size uh, which you might want for the beehives Um, so you know mirrors are the best but at the same time you know but you will get less of that 72 terabytes of raw space So you might decide to use RAID Z to get more storage. But if uh, you're more worried about, um,
0: performance and flexibility, then the mirrors give you more options. Yes. Yeah. And in general, um, I would recommend you probably finish reading both books and then uh, maybe think about your setup once again, but it's not a problem. If you made things not the way you like it at the end, you can still rebuild everything.
1: Yeah. The other option is create a pool with just, you know, 10 or 12 of the drives or something and start playing with it. And then as you learn more, you could recreate the pool, uh, create a new pool out of the rest of the drives, migrate your data over to the new pool, then delete the old pool and expand the new pool by adding those discs to it or
0: whatever. Oh yeah. But that way you can also learn about send yeah. and receive, uh, you know, you, you have 36
1: drives to play with. So maybe you want to try a bunch of different things and, and just play with it. Right. If it's, it was just for your home lab, uh, there are advantages to just doing lots of different things. Mm. Uh, it's, yeah, the biggest one we think ahead, you know, your Plex data might be relatively big. And so you want to make sure you don't have to try to back up and restore it or something. Uh, so, you know, try to keep a bit of flexibility so you can move stuff around and uh, re, you know, recreate your pools if you want to try different setups.
0: Yep and just create a data set for each new thing and then put everything there so you can keep it nice and separate. But yeah, uh, good luck with your uh, ZFS journey with the server. And if you have further questions or have something to show to us, maybe your final setup then, uh, definitely let us know uh, to feedback at vstna.tv. We're always uh, looking forward to kind of, you know, what people build with ZFS and what kind of cool things they're doing with their setup. All right, then uh, last but not least, is it Pedro or Pedreo? I think it's just Pedro. Not sure. Uh, but that person has a question about scaling FreeBSD jails. jails. Goes like this. Hi there. Another question for ye. I regularly hear you speak highly of jails and also use them in a basic way for simple tasks at home. Is there a robust way to scale jails similar to how Linux containers do without the need uh, for some homemade bash scripts or shell? Uh, is Ansible the best route to take?
1: So I guess it depends what you mean by scale. Like, do you mean automatically start more jails on different hosts to handle load or you mean just it's easier, uh, uh, making it simple to manage, you know, 10 jails at once. If you just want to manage a lot of jails, then yes, Ansible or something is probably the right thing. Um, I, I don't use any homemade bash scripts on any of my stuff.
0: Yeah. Or if it's, uh, just the management solution because you kind of, uh, grow more jails and you can manage them. Uh, look at different solutions like uh, jail or ioCage that give some of you, uh, some of the flexibility to you to create like many different jails in, in, a, in an instant with a different configuration for each of them. But yeah, the, the, the scaling uh, of Linux containers is a, is a different story. Definitely jails are not there yet, but some of these things are kind of overblown and not everyone needs AWS like data center at home although some people would like to have, but it's, uh, it's a lot of it's a lot of stuff to manage and keep track of in this kind of environment. So that's a whole different uh, playing field. But yeah, if anyone else has something uh, in uh, like a home-built solution or found something on the web that does uh, previously jail scaling, whatever that might mean, uh, then, and we haven't covered it yet on the show, then let us know and we'll be happy to feature it. All right, then thanks for this question. And that pretty much covers this week's episode of BSD Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for next week's episode.